welcome back to the golden age of Islam. And as you know, if you've been following this series, it's been a while since we produced a new episode, and no excuses, but I've been busy with a lot of things. I've got two new books coming out, and in that process of editing and proofreading the not fun part of that whole business. And uh, so that's kept me quite busy. But uh, anyway, here we are back again. And so for this episode and for uh, the foreseeing future, we're going to go back and look at some areas that we sort of went over quickly in the beginning. You know, when we started this series, I had no idea how many episodes it would go, how long the program would go, uh, if anyone would listen or not. So we went kind of quickly uh, through the chronology, through very important events like the beginnings of Islam. Uh, and as it turns out, here we are 60 episodes later, and uh, thankfully we've got a lot of followers. And so uh, I think we can go back and relook some important elements and take a deeper look at them. And for this purpose, uh, we're going way back to the beginning of the story. Now, that's why this episode has two numbers on it, okay? It's number 64, because that's where it comes in the order that we, these have been produced. But we're also giving it another number to show you where it would fit in chronologically. So, if you're starting this series from the beginning, uh, this would fit in. This episode would be 0.1 because it's going back before the earliest episode here. And so, with all that um, introduction, we want to get right down to it. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Bedouin culture of Arabia into which Islam was born. And this is very important because, as we've said, Islam is more than just a religion. It's a religion, it was an empire, and it was a culture. And so we're really looking at the culture that develops here. And like any religion, uh, it borrows from the culture that it grows up in. And so if you study Hinduism, uh, there are, of course, elements of Indian culture in there. In fact, the caste system, which gets a very bad rap nowadays, is said to be a cultural element and not a religious element. Anyway, a lot of the practices that we're going to see uh, in Islamic societies come from early Bedouin practices and, you know, may or may not have uh, been even mentioned in the Quran. And so, uh, therefore... Um, they become important, but we have to see where they're coming from. Uh, this is especially true of the idea of leadership in the Islamic community and where that comes from. It derives a lot from the Bedouin culture. So, with that in mind, uh, we're going to launch into uh, episode 0.1, talking about the Bedouin culture of Arabia. So, stay with us. Welcome back. Hopefully you've stayed with us after that long introduction. Okay, so when we're talking about the origins of Islam in 7th century Arabia, 
uh, we have to talk about Bedouin culture because much of what is going to develop as Islamic culture and practice is going to be either a continuation of Bedouin traditions or in many cases a rejection and a reaction to those Bedouin practices. And so that's a very important to understand what they were so we can look at where some of these things come from. Some of the things we associate with Islamic societies are not coming so much from the religion but from this milieu if you will uh, that it grows up in. Okay, so uh, those of you who read Jared Diamond in high school, we're going to go and start uh, where he loves to start with geography. And geography here is exceptionally important to understand Bedouin culture. In fact, really none of it's going to make any sense unless you uh, understand the culture. Now, I, I always take the approach that you know pretty much everything that societies do at one time made sense. Now, I don't say it makes sense always uh, throughout history, but at some point it makes sense for the culture they're living in. And of course, we're talking about Bedouin tribes of Central Arabia. Uh, this is one of the driest and most infertile places on earth, but not completely. If it were, then no one uh, would live there. There is a section of the Arabian Peninsula known as the Rubal Khali, which means the empty quarter, um, literally, because that's pretty much what it is. Um, and there really isn't, hasn't been really any, any settlement there or tribes there because there's <clears throat> really no water there at all. Okay, but for the rest of Arabia, mostly Central Arabia, we are talking about an extremely dry desert. Now, of course, deserts come in all types. So this is not like, let's say, the deserts of the southwest United States, Arizona, New Mexico, Monument Valley, uh, those areas, uh, which compared to Arabia, get quite a bit of rain. Now, compared to um, the coasts of America or Great Britain, not much at all. Okay, so we're talking um, in, in Arabia, it may rain once or twice a year in a sp specific location, and it is absolutely not uncommon uh, for it to go an entire year with no rain. Okay, well, this obviously creates some problems. This makes settling down next to impossible because, of course, what do people need to settle down? Number one, you need water, and then related to water, uh, you need to be able to grow things or at least harvest what's, you know, to gather what's already growing. You need to be able to support livestock and so forth. So in, in the desert, in this particular case, in, in Central Arabia, we don't have that in most of the areas. Okay. Now, of course, the exceptions are the fringes. So uh, Yemen to the south is mountainous and has supported kingdoms. Uh, along the coasts, there are cities like Mecca and Medina, like Kuwait and Bahrain on uh, the other side. We're talking about central Arabia is extremely uh, dry. And so tribes have to move to make use of what little water resources there are. These are what oases are. And this most likely is where the term Arab comes from, Araba, 
in Arabic means to move. Now, there's a lot of dispute about what the term actually uh, originally meant, but this is the most likely explanation is it refers to moving, mobile tribes, trying to use what little water there is in the desert. And so wells become exceptionally important. In fact, this is the lifeline for a tribe. When you are able to find and dig a well, this is what sustains your tribe. Now, you shouldn't get the idea when we talk about a well in the desert, uh, a water well, you shouldn't get the idea. I mean, this is not like, you know, Lassie and Tommy falling down the well, you know, a nice brick thing with a, uh, you know, a bucket that you lower down. Um, if you've ever seen the digging of a well, uh, finding water in the desert, it's its not a, a very um, appetizing picture. I mean, you're talking about digging down through sand till you start to hit like wet sand and you kind of start to hit mud and from that mud comes like some some kind of water that you can draw off and boil and use. its its We're not talking about... Um, uh, Dasani water here, okay? There's, no one's going to want to bottle this up and sell it. All right, so that's the kind of tough lifestyle that we have. And the reason I mention this is my, may sound very obvious, is that is going to create many of the customs, the morals, the ethics, uh, the taboos that shape Bedouin society into which uh, Islam is going to react and in some cases to perpetuate. The first result that this has is that Central Arabia never has a centralized government of, of any type uh, until the coming of Islam. Now, the exceptions are all going to be on the fringes of the desert where it is possible to settle down. Of course, Yemen is a big uh, example. Uh, we think today, uh, Yemen, and I apologize to any listeners uh, from there, beautiful historical country. Yemen's government in recent history has been plagued by instability, but if we go back prior to the time of Islam, this was the most stable area. This was the area that had a kingdom. This is probably where the Queen of Sheba from the biblical legend came from. Okay, and if we go up far enough north, we start to get into what is now Jordan, and we hit the Nabataean Kingdom, which of course today is famous for its capital city of Petra in the desert. Uh, that stretched down a little ways uh, into the desert. But for the most part, we're talking about the, the central area of the Arabian Peninsula. It never had a centralized government. The attempts to try and impose one, the Romans tried at times to try and um, conquer this area, and of course it just ended up uh, losing their army in the desert. Okay, the area, the terrain, is just really not suited to that. It's not suited to permanent settlement and therefore not suited to permanent government. So this is going to be one of the big changes that Islam is going to bring. It's going to unite for the very first time uh, area and peoples who have not been united politically on a permanent basis before. Okay, so that's the first thing we want to tuck away. But let's go a little bit deeper and look at the lives of actual tribal society. Now, when we mention tribes, probably the image that pops to mind is that a tribe is essentially an extended family. And that is correct. 
To really understand what happens in Bedouin culture, even today, and the effects that it has, uh, you really always have to bear this in mind that we're talking about families, large families, I mean, larger than, than probably any of us can trace our families. And an interesting way to look at this is I always tell my students, think of circles, right? You start with your, your inner circle, uh, so to speak, right? That's your immediate family, your nuclear family, maybe. And then you have the extended family, right? Cousins, what, you know, what we call first cousins. And then you can go out even further, right, to like second cousins and so forth. And you can go on and on and on, I mean, until essentially you come to the, the first humans and of course, in Islamic belief, that's Adam and Eve. You can go all the way out that far. Okay, so what does that mean? Now, th this is something that is really the dominant theme when we want to understand how Bedouin culture works, is this idea of they are extended families. And that is your political organization. That's your economic organization. Well, the first thing that means is that lineage becomes exceptionally important. And this is really, it's, it's called sometimes the one great science of the Bedouin. Okay, the, the other is poetry, which could be the science or the art. But the idea of lineage, okay, this is like uh, Ancestry.com on steroids. Okay, you really need to be able to trace your lineage literally all the way back to Adam, to the first humans. Uh, why? Because this determines those circles, who's in and who's out. So this is exceptionally important when we're talking about mobile people who don't have a permanent abode, who are moving through the desert as other tribes are moving through the same desert, and you're competing for resources. So if my group of people comes across your group of people, and we're both looking for very scarce water resources, well, we're going to quickly determine, you know, what is the relationship between our peoples? Are we on the same side or not? Now, uh, Nowadays, that could be political. You look at someone's ID or their passport. What side of the border are you on? Okay, you're one of us. You're a member of our group, our political party, or whatnot. In this time, there's really only one way to tell, and that is family lineage. And uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, repeating the same things over and over again. There's nothing else. Right. There is no nationality you can talk about. There's no city. Hey, where are you from? Like when we meet someone nowadays, first thing, hey, where are you from? Oh, you're from California? That's great. No, I mean, this, this is it. Right? We don't have the permanent abodes. What we have is family. And what is the relationship? So this becomes critically important, um, you know, because we are desperately searching for those scarce resources Here's an area over there. There's some growth. Uh, there may be water. Now, again, this is not like what you see in the movies when we talk about an oasis. Again, depending on where you go. Um, to other areas, other desert areas, like going to Egypt, for example, which is also a desert country, but it's a, a far, far wetter desert, if I can use that term, right? It's not nearly as, as dry as the Arabian desert, 
um, oases look like what you expect they do. Um, palm trees um, all over the place, growing a lot of dates and so forth. Uh, it looks fairly fertile. Uh, you just go out a little ways and then you find you're in the, the desert. In Egypt, the desert is mostly clay. It's dirt. It's not pure sand in those areas. We're talking about finding an oasis in Central Arabia. Uh, I mean, you're talking about finding a very little bit of vegetation on the ground that makes you think there may be water underneath. I mean, there has to be some water. Okay, we're not talking about real abundance here. Okay, so if our tribe is moving, uh, we realize how important this is. We need to find water or else, hey, we think there's some over there. Oh, here you come with your tribe. Uh, we're going to make contact, and we're going to figure out really quickly, oh, we're related. Our tribal leader and your tribal leader are third cousins, once removed. Hey, we're relatives. We need to settle down. We need to share this thing. We need to work out a deal. Or you are from some completely other tribe, um, and what that means is we're going to fight over it. And, of course, these things are, are, are well, well known. I mean, everybody knows what the different lineages are. And so you need to be able to trace your lineage back. Well, what effects does this have? Well, if you've ever looked at Arabic names, particularly from the, the Arabian Peninsula, not so much from um, like North Africa and so forth, uh, it will always be something Ibn, something Ibn, 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 and so forth, or uh, Bin, Bin means the same thing. This means son, son of. So Muhammad, Ibn, Abdulaziz, Ibn, Abdullah, Ibn, and so forth, on and on until we get to the, the name of the tribe. And these things are, to this day, still very important. Uh, I worked in Saudi Arabia. I worked with the Saudi government uh, for one time, and even... Uh, today, the names there, at least the official names they use, had three generations worth. Uh, and they would eliminate the bin because it was understood. So someone would have a name tag that would say Abdullah, Muhammad, Saleh. That was three generations of the person's uh, lineage. And so a middle name, you know, we, we just give people middle names in our culture. Middle name is always your father's name. This is why a woman will have a, a man's middle name. But that is significant because uh, everyone would wear these on their name tags and they'd have them on their desks and on their doors. And you could tell, therefore, how people were related. And there were lots of relations in there. So if uh, Abdullah Muhammad Salah and uh, Suleiman Abdulaziz Salah were both in the same organization, okay, then you knew those two were related. Now, if the t last two names were the same, that meant those two um, were brothers. Not just cousins, but brothers. And there, there were, just like in many cultures, um, in Saudi Arabia today, in the military, certain families go into the military, certain families tend to go into, uh, say, the, the Ministry of the Interior and so forth. Uh, so you have a few families out there. And knowing these were extremely important if you wanted to get anything done. Um, many folks would tell you that that was much more important than the rank uh, someone had. Okay, uh, I won't comment on that, but it is extremely important. But technically, that lineage goes back 
forever. You could trace it all the way back to the beginning, and this is extremely important. So uh, in traditional Bedouin culture, there's something called the khamsa. Now you may recognize, if you know Arabic, khamsa is the number five. What this refers to is five generations back. Now to give you an idea, five generations, that is great, great, great grandfather. Okay, now how many people in America or Britain could tell you, maybe, okay, maybe in Europe different. In the United States, how many people know who is five generations back, their great, great, great grandfather? Um, definitely not. And often if people know it, Nowadays, it's because they researched it on, you know, Ancestry.com and uncovered this thing as a curiosity. Okay, this was something in Bedouin times. You had to know this. This was your identity. You had to at least be able to go back five generations. Why? Because five generations was considered the, the vengeance group. And vengeance is going to be extremely important here. Why? Because there's no government. There's no police. There are no governmental laws, right? There are unspoken traditions, but there are no laws, okay? So if someone is killed and they are in your vengeance group, then you need to take vengeance. And there, there is a lot of bloodshed going on. This is a very harsh environment out there, as we'll mention uh, further. So let's say someone is killed. You hear about this. Who was it that was killed? Okay, you look at their lineage and you find out, oh, you know, that is someone who is a, a third cousin from me. Okay, so that means they are they are related to me closer than five generations. They're in my group. We have to take vengeance for them. Same thing, let's say your cousin goes out and kills somebody, which is not at all uncommon, okay, and we find out the person they killed was from another vengeance group. What's that mean? They're coming for us, and because I am related to him within the first five generations, uh, that means I'm involved in this too. And we're going to talk more about the vengeance culture and how that works. Very, very specific rules. It's not just... Um, you know, like, I hit you, you hit me. Very specific rules how that works. But the idea of five generations back, that is your kin group. And, and you know these people. I mean, you're dealing with them. Now, Now that, that's impressive in itself. And that's why we say that lineage is a Bedouin science, uh, tracing all this. Considering also that they, they have to be able to move. They don't carry a lot of possessions with them. They don't have a lot of written records to be able to trace this. This is mostly oral history uh, that is passed down. Now, with everything dealing with Bedouin culture, I just should caveat this early on. It's the same as talking about any culture, right? There are rules, but people break the rules all the time. Okay, so, I mean, you could study what is, say, American values, and you learn, okay, these are things that Americans value. Then you pick up the newspaper and you will see all kinds of violations of this. Wait a minute, you're not supposed to do that and that. Yeah, same thing here. Okay, so this is the way it's supposed to work. There, there are going to be exceptions, right? There's going to be a lot of killing going on within that Hamsa group. Okay, that creates another problem, okay? Um, 
And this leads to probably the most famous uh, Arab saying having to deal with um, allegiance and alliance. Uh, and it's it's a bit of a stereotype, but it, it still holds true. It's the idea of I against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, and my cousin and I against the stranger. But as we said, you could take that all the way up, right? You know, me and my first generation relative against my second, me and my second generation relative against my third, all the way up. So the five is just a, is that's sort of a, a convenience that's been established. It, it can go um, much further. Okay, so we have that uh, idea of these circles, as, as you will say, right? So say the, the first generation is your immediate circle, then you your second generation relatives, and so forth. How this really differs um, from, from our culture, even if you are really into... Uh, genealogy, or let's say you're a you're a British lord, and you can trace your ancestry all the way back to the Battle of Hastings. Uh, if that's the case, um, even in that case, you're talking about relatives are probably spread out, right? If I had to go back more than two generations to trace my family, I have to go to Italy, and I mean they're probably spread out all over. Europe and other parts of America and so forth. One reason why this is somewhat easier to do in the Bedouin situation and also very important why you have to do it is these are the people that live together. This is the community, right? There's no town, there's no county, there's nothing of else, right? So uh, typically the closest group is what's called a bait. Uh, now, if you know Arabic, you know the word bait means house, but this refers to your immediate family. And typically, the, the bait would stay together in, in the same tent. And again, we, we live in tents. We have to be able to pack up everything we have and move. Uh, so typically, the immediate family would live together in a tent. And, and these are going to be, even the immediate family is going to be much larger, uh, have many more children than, than what we do today. Okay, so that's the first group. Um, the next group out from that, if we're going to go to, let's say, now bringing our cousins into this. Okay, so everybody with the same father is living in the same tent. Okay, but now everybody who are our cousins, uh, our next group is the Ashira. Now, I should point out, there there are actually Arabic names for every every circle, and every circle in this corresponds to every rung on on the lineage, right? So if you, if you have your circle of, say, third-generation relatives, that has a name. Uh, these tend, when they get translated into English, there's just no words for them. So we tend to use the word clan um, with a C, not, not the bad one. Um, but, but even that, it, it should not be seen to correspond to like a Scottish clan uh, so forth because the word clan, sub-clan, could be referring to any one of these. But typically, okay, so we're talking about the Ashira. This is, this is your cousins. Uh, and again, this will be a, a much bigger group of cousins than most of us have. So these are your, these are your close uh, relatives. And marriage can take place within this group. Now, there would be reasons why... You don't want to do that, 
political reasons why you want to marry, say, to more to the out group, but but it can. Okay, so then we have our, our third generation, fourth generation, up to the fifth. Now, the significance of this is these are going to be communities that move together, but that is going to be highly dependent on nature, on the climate. And, and this is something that's sort of hard to picture, and I don't want to, you know, oversimplify what's going on here. But like I said, rainfall in this desert is extremely unpredictable. Even today, it will, it will rain like once a year in Saudi Arabia, and when it, when it does, you have car crashes all over the highway. Um, for one, because people are not used to driving in it. For two, because if it only rains once a year, that brings up all the oil that has seeped into the highways. Stay off the highways, please, uh, if, if, if it's raining there. Uh, but there, there are years when they have floods. Uh, so it's very unpredictable, but that determines, you know, how abundant uh, the, the food and water is. Now, again, when we're talking about abundance, you, know, you got to scale it well down. Okay, a really abundant boom year by the, you know, the standards of, say, Western Europe or something would, would be, um, you know, a drought. It would be a crisis. Okay, why is this significant that it varies? Well, in a, in a year or a series of years or in a region that's experiencing decent rainfall, we can essentially expand the circle, the tribal circle that lives and works together. And there are definite advantages to doing this. Uh, and this is sort of a hard, hard dynamic to explain to people. I always try to explain to the, the students. It, it, you know, it's not just a simple thing to say, oh, okay, we had five inches of rain. We're going we're gonna to expand the circle of three generations. It, it, I mean, of course, it doesn't work that simply. But there are definite advantages to expanding that circle if you can. Why? Because what trading goes on, right, what economies of scale can go on are much better. I mean, this is why we form large communities. This is why we have, you know, international trade agreements. It's, it's a good thing the more people we can bring together to work together to trade, right, we can, we can work on what we're good at, you work on what you're good at. But that, of course, requires more water. So the, the idea, as I said, the, the five is like, that's your vengeance group. But the group, how wide it is of your circle that may be sticking together and, and basically, you know, be meeting together is going to vary based on um, the, the weather, the climate. Uh, if you start to have really bad years... Uh, then it gets really small. It's, you know, it could be just the Ashira, just the immediate cousins who stick together. And this is this idea, uh, my cousin and I against the stranger. So um, let's say you are related to me at the third or fourth generation, right? Um, and we run into each other. My group runs into your group. A lot depends on how well things are going. If this is an abundant year and, and the tribes are really getting bigger, there's a lot more coordination among them, we, we might share. If this is a bad year and we are struggling to find water, okay, you may be my third cousin, but um, we're, we're at the point where there's only going to be enough water for one of us to survive and, and we're going to fight over it. And they do.
Okay. Um, it's, it's often said that the tribes of Arabia were in a state of constant warfare. I mean, this, this is not really accurate. The word war is just not accurate to this situation. It's, I mean, it's really all for, for yourself. It's survival of the fittest out there, except when we can come together and, and form temporarily larger groups. And so a more accurate term, uh, we talk about raiding, raiding between tribes. Now, if, if you're, uh, trust me, if you, if you were involved in a raid, if someone raided you today, I mean, you would want to go to the police and, and, and have them locked up. Okay, so this is not a pleasant thing. Um, this involves very often people getting killed. Uh, this involves, uh, you know, your livestock being taken, uh, your food being taken, which may be the equivalent of um, killing you also. Uh, this could involve taking women or very often, uh, as we'll talk a little bit later, this, this involves rape of the other tribe. Um, not just for fun, but for specific reasons you're trying to mess with their lineage. Okay, so these can be uh, very violent, but the idea of raiding, it's not a criminal activity. It's not an aberration. It is an accepted part of the Bedouin lifestyle, uh, at least at this time we're talking about. We're not talking about modern day. Okay, um, it, it, it's accepted. And in fact, one of the qualifications of a tribal leader is you want someone who is a good raider. Now, in fact, in reality, a lot of times tribes would have two leaders. They would have a, a leader who's in charge of the, the warfare, the fighting, the raiding side, and one who's essentially the political leader, like the judge and so forth, uh, because there are different skills. But this is something you definitely had to be able to do or your tribe was not going to survive. So again, this idea of the circles becomes very important. If it's if we're going through a period of, of economic um, stability and growth, you know, we may see alliances of tribes out to the third, fourth, fifth generation and beyond, having a peace between them, still be raiding against other groups who are further away. Um, if, it's, if it's a bad time, yeah, literally you would be raiding against your second cousins, third cousins, and so forth. Uh, but again, there is no government to oversee this. There are just traditions. Um, and so this is something that is going to characterize the society of Bedouin Arabia. And this is going to be one of the big things that Islam is going to change. Okay, when the Prophet Muhammad uh, comes along and, you know, he's got a message and the message is of unity because they can see the difference from a united uh, society, a kingdom, an empire like the Byzantines, someplace like Syria, someplace like Egypt, where you have a large society that comes together and pools their resources versus tribes that are fighting it out at, at a very low level, you're just not going to get that far. And so unity is one of the things that Islam will bring, but they're bringing it to an environment that is very, very, very difficult. Okay, all right, welcome back. So now with 
all that in mind, all we've said about lineage and the importance of it, uh, we're going to have to talk about one of the most sensitive subjects and the most controversial, and that is gender roles and specifically uh, the roles for women in Bedouin society. Now, um, this is about the most controversial subject on uh, talking about Islamic culture in uh, Arab culture that you can come up with. So please understand, uh, we're going to try and talk about how some of these customs came about and how they came to be practical and important in this very harsh environment that I've just described. Now, when you take stuff like that and you transport them to the 21st century world, very different. Or even uh, the world of urban Cairo in the 16th century, very different. But in the environment where we just talked about, where lineage is everything, because lineage is essentially your identity, right? This is essentially your passport, your nationality, and so forth. Um, you know, when, when you show up in the desert and we come across you uh, at a watering hole, determining whether you are part of our group or outside our group is going to be uh, essential and life-changing for everybody involved. Okay, so you have, to, you have to know the lineage. We have to know who belongs where. Well, they don't have DNA testing at this time. Okay, so how do they do this? Okay, um, whether we like it or not, the reality becomes the way that the Bedouin tribes are able to ensure their lineage and ensure that, you know, who is in and who is out has to deal with the chastity of the women. And this is why the chastity of women becomes the most important thing in the honor of the tribe. And again, I'm saying if you transport this to modern day, okay, it's, it's a little bit different. But at the time, the logic at least was this is the one way we can tell that everybody who is in our bloodline is in our bloodline. Okay, um, and so... It's just the, the biological reality that, okay, so the reality is the, the men are out, they're hunting, they're making war, they're doing deals with other tribes. Okay, they're, they're making a lot of contact out there. Um, so we don't, we don't really have much uh, surveillance over them. But how can we make sure that everyone who is born in our tribe is a member of our tribe or... Um, is someone we want to be born in our tribe. So let's say our Ashira is, you know, we want to solidify a bond with another Ashira. Well, of course, you know, we arrange marriages, and this is a way of joining our bloodlines. But how do we ensure that? Well, the only way they can ensure that is um, to keep an, an eye on the women of the tribe, and that way they can be sure that any babies that they have are from their their marriages and not from somewhere else. And so this is where the idea of seclusion of the women um, becomes very important. Um, also, we're talking about being out in a very harsh desert environment. I mean, it, it's not like you're going to go out and, and go to town and go shopping and, you know, interact with other people. There's really not a lot of places to go, but we do have to, you know, protect the camp and make sure that anybody who comes into the camp and particularly anybody who has contact 
with um, the women in your family is supposed to. Okay, so the this from here we get the very important concept of the haram. Now the 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 harem in of course in Western imagination has all kinds of uh, crazy ideas, uh, all these orgies and so forth. But what it refers to is these the the women who are not in your immediate family are forbidden to other men. You're not allowed to see them. You're not allowed to go near them. And there is enough surveillance supervision placed uh, on the on the tribe on the bait that this can be enforced. And uh, let's face it, we're you know we're out in the middle of the desert, so this is um, uh, considerably easier than it would be in a city. And so, therefore, preserving the honor of the women folk means you're preserving your bloodline, which means if if we're from, let's say, the, the, the Banu Hashim, that means that we know everybody who is in our group is definitely a, a member of the Banu Hashim, and our bloodline has not been made impure. So, in the honor code of the Bedouin, uh, a specific portion of it, which is known as Ard, refers to the chastity of women in the tribe or the Ashira, and that is the responsibility of the leadership of the tribe. And this is one of the you know worst insults you can heap on anyone is to imply that uh, their women folk are not chaste. And so, like I said, this is this is the ideal, right? But reality ends up being very different. So one of the most um, common and entertaining forms of poetry is uh, what we call the hijah, which is basically insult poetry. So now, if, if you think the rap battles of today are, are nasty, trust me. Uh, I mean, these are just as nasty. Uh, but one of the big things you would do, of course, you would you would insult the other tribe. You would say they were cowards, they were weak, they you know they lose battles. But one of the ways you really hit them is by you know making um, not just insinuations but very nasty comments about the women of the tribe. You know, basically being promiscuous and having sex with everybody so that you don't know who is really a son of whom. I mean, this is like the, the most vicious insult um, that, that you can make, and, and it's being made a lot. But this leads to, you know, a lot of the traditions that we have in Bedouin culture that deal with the seclusion of women and the separation of the sexes. So even if, if women are going to go out, they're going to be, to be covered. And this leads to a lot of traditions having to do with dress and so forth. Again, as I say, different thing if you want to project it to a modern environment but in the environment of the Bedouin, this was the purpose that it served. So the easiest way to sort of summarize the effect that this has, because I realize this is extremely controversial and we're not about to delve into it, is to say that you know the value of chastity and sexual purity is pretty much emphasized in every religion in the world. Right for men and women, but how you characterize that, how you carry it out, uh, has to do a lot with cultural practices, and so the the actual rules of what is chaste and unchaste behavior 
in this case, is going to come a lot from the Bedouin traditions, and this is going to be generalized, um, just as it will be in other cultures. Okay. Now, this also leads to a, a very... Now, as we know, this has a very dark side. Uh, this leads to some of the darker traditions, which uh, even on go today, uh, for example, the idea of honor killings. So if a woman is seen as having been defiled, if her chastity has been violated, then it becomes incumbent upon the leadership of her family, the leadership of the tribe, to restore the honor, essentially the purity of the bloodline, so we know that that still means something. And this is done by killing the woman. Now, of course, this gets tremendously abused. Uh, even today, very often, uh, the person who is executing the honor killing is very often uh, the person who raped the woman and is responsible. Uh, but this is where it comes from, because the idea of preserving the chastity, the honor, the bloodline, is essentially preserving the identity of your tribe and your group. And without that, you've got nothing, right? You've got no nationality. You've got no citizenship. You've got nothing else. And this is what you're going to rely on to survive. Well, another even darker side of this is that with all the raiding that goes on between tribes, which is mostly considered legit, uh, there is violence against women. It's oftentimes not portrayed that way. I mean, it's oftentimes portrayed as this great romance, but this is essentially becomes a part of um, the raiding. And what's going on is, in addition to attacking this other tribe, we're going to steal their livestock, you know, we're going to steal their possessions, uh, and we're going to despoil their bloodline. Okay, so we know that tribe doesn't have a pure bloodline, ha ha ha, because we despoiled it. Now, this is not just something that was like, you know, a lot of the sexual abuse scandals today that is hidden and comes up when, you know, someone uh, blows the whistle. This is stuff that was bragged about. And so one of the themes of Bedouin poetry, um, much of it is, you know, bragging about the the martial abilities of the tribe and uh, about individuals, about how we, you know, we killed so many of the other tribe and we defeated them in battle and we crushed them and so forth. And then there will also be uh, bragging about our conquest over their women. Now, I mean, by today's standards, we would call this rape. Um, and, and again, it's, sometimes it's portrayed as just, ah, you know, we went in and we, we raped all their women, but it's made to sound very glorious. Uh, or other times it's, you know, tried to sound like this forbidden love. You know, I broke into the harem and, you know, the, the, the girl just, she couldn't resist. But in any way, we, we know what's, uh, what they're talking about here. And so this is something that is, is bragged about, uh, particularly in pre-Islamic poetry and uh, stories. And, of course, it's something that is going to conflict with Islam when it comes along. Uh, because, you know, obviously that is something that goes very much against the, the teachings of the Quran and the Bible, and it's uh, sexually immoral for men as well as women. And so this is something that will be fought against 
However, to be honest, if we look at the history, um, you know, it's it's not often a great success. I mean, a lot of the same things continue to go on. All right. Well, one question I often ask my students when we're studying this is, which of the Bedouin values do you think would be compatible with Islam and which were not? And the one that, of course, the Bedouin are most proud of is hospitality. And this is one that is very compatible with the coming of Islam. And Bedouin society is known for being hospitable. And the clearest example of this is what is known as the three days of hospitality that is due to any guest, meaning anyone that shows up at your camp, you have to give them three days of hospitality before you're even allowed to ask what their purpose is. And then the expectation is that they will move on after this. Now, this could even be someone who is an enemy. Now, the reason for this, obviously, is very practical. It's because it's so hard to survive in the desert, and it's very perilous to move from place to place. Uh, You need to be able to stop when you can, and what few wells are out there, sources of water, are going to be exploited by someone. And so, you know, without this, it just wouldn't be possible to travel. And so this becomes one of these unwritten but very important rules. The idea is that, well, okay, we will extend it to you with the understanding that you're going to extend it to us. Okay. And so, even if someone's an enemy, well, you have to give them the three days of hospitality because sooner or later you're going to be traveling and you're going to need it from someone. And the uh, implication that you didn't provide it would ruin your reputation. And this becomes, again, another one of these things that gets trashed a lot in the Bedouin poetry in the Hijah is talking about your your opponent being a miser. Uh, in fact, one of the first and most famous books of um, Islamic prose is called The Misers, written by Al-Jahiz, who he's making fun of, but very seriously, examples of miserly behavior. Now, one example of this concept in its uh, most extreme form has to do with the vengeance and how this is handled. As we mentioned, uh, vengeance is one of the uh, Bedouin values, Tha'er, is, it's known as, and the idea that if someone kills one of us, we have to kill one of theirs. You know, you have to pay back. As I said, the raiding is acceptable, but of course you don't like it. When one tribe raids you, you, you have to raid back and so forth. Well, how do we prevent this cycle of violence from escalating? Again, as I've said so many times, there's no government, there's no laws, so this has to be handled amongst the tribes themselves. And so we get this very important uh, system of mediation and sanctuary. So what happens is if someone uh, kills someone or wounds someone else or you know, does something else that is considered bad that you would normally take vengeance against, 
Um, that person can take sanctuary uh, with really with anyone. With it can be with another tribe. It can even be with the tribe of the offended party. And the way this is uh, measured, the way it's done is if the person makes it to the tent of someone, then they are given um, sanctuary. And the Arabic word for this is dachala. Uh, it, I mean, it literally means he entered, meaning if you, if you can enter the, the tent or in some cases if there happens to be a building, um, then they have to give you sanctuary. And where the way it typically works is if the person can get within the distance of one stick from your tent, then that's considered having make it there and you now have to protect them. Um, and the idea is, you know, when you set up a tent, right, you use tent um, lines, ropes that go out and that's about how far they go out. So when someone gets to that distance, they are within the distance of your tent, okay? And and so they've made it. So, I mean, there's, there's a big thing, of course, of trying to stop the person from getting there. I mean, that's why we're that specific about what distance they have to reach. So let's say someone killed one of the members of our Ashira, and, you know, they start um, running as fast as they can, and our folks are chasing them, uh, going to want to kill them, uh, but he makes it to the distance of a tent, you know, you're safe. So, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, uh, when you're playing hide and seek or tag, right? You make it to the base, I'm safe, you can't get me, but very seriously. Okay, so what happens at that point? So we have dachala, meaning the person has entered and they are now um, given a sanctuary and initially they have to be given three days of sanctuary. Well, the person, the owner, uh, the head of the household with whom they have taken sanctuary, now becomes responsible for them. And in fact, that person has to go out to to the offended parties, whoever that may be, right? I mean, this, this person may be from your tribe, they may be from, you may be in the victim's tribe, or you may be just a, a third party, but you have to go out, basically, you're supposed to go to everyone within within range, within distance, and announce the fact that, okay, uh, I am providing sanctuary for so-and-so, right? This is to let them know. I mean, for one thing, it lets them know uh, where, where they are, but also... Um, it lets them know, okay, you can't, you can't touch this person. You can't come after them because if you do, um, then you are violating the, the sanctity of my household to the extent that the custom became, if someone violated this, okay, so let's say someone went and killed your brother and then that person fled and they made it to my tent and I s announced that I'm providing sanctuary for them and you said, the heck with that, I don't care, and you broke in and killed the person. Um, the custom was, not only am I obliged to take a vengeance on you, but I'm advised to take a vengeance three times, because it's that significant, right? So again, the, the, these things are only held up by tradition, by respect. It's only because of the code of honor that these rules uh, hold up, so we got to be really serious. That is such a violation. If you violate that sanctity, um, your tribe gets revenge upon it three times. 
which is considered legit. I mean, that's what you've got coming to you. And and so then you would, they'd probably do the same thing for that person, try and, you know, uh, find someone to protect them. Now, the purpose of this, and it makes sense, is to provide the opportunity for mediation. Okay. After three days, now we have a problem. We have the problem that you are now um, concealing a fugitive from us. Okay. And we're going to want to talk about it. But this is, this is not going to uh, just go. It's going to have to be resolved. And so in the space of those three days, if I am the protector, my tribe's going to reach out and try to find someone who is going to mediate this. And, of course, the only way to mediate it is there's going to have to be some kind of payment. And we talk about the famous blood money. But, I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to have to somehow pay this or our tribes are going to be at war. So um, they'll go and seek out someone who has... Um, high standing, someone who has the respect, but it's really the, the system that gives them the power because everyone realized this system has to work or you can't break down. We may be really mad about what you did, but we can't let the whole thing fall apart. Now, in many cases it did, but when it fell apart, then we'd have tribal warfare. So we're trying to prevent that. So mediation becomes, yet again, another very important value. So if we're looking for someone who is a good leader, right? we want someone who's courageous in battle, we want someone who takes vengeance, we want someone who preserves um, the chastity of the women in the tribe, and then you also want someone who's a, a good negotiator, who's going to work out a solution to this so that everyone can go away um, peacefully. And so the Arabic term for mediation is wusta. I mean, it's literally what comes from middle. Now, this term, if you hear it today, it has a, a very negative connotation. But initially, what it means is just the, you know, the ability to mediate. So we're going to find someone who's respected by both parties who's going to come in and, and work out a solution. And again, it, it's not going to be a solution we would like by our standards, but there's going to be some sort of payoff. I mean, it's basically what happens if you go to civil court and right, have a wrongful death lawsuit. Um, but of course, I mean, nowhere near that kind of that kind of money. Okay, now someone who's really good at this, someone who is respected, who has the standing. You know, that person is said to have Wusta, right? This is a very important person. They can smooth things over. And as you're sick of hearing me say by now, right, because there's no courts, there's no police, right? And so even today, this is uh, still used. Now, the reason this takes on a negative connotation today is, you know, someone who is said to have Wusta, I mean, this is basically seen as someone who can, like, grease the system. There's a, a very definite sense of corruption here. This is someone who can get you what you want uh, under the table, right? And you need to have someone like that to make things go. But originally, this is what it refers to is, I mean, legitimate mediation to work out these troubles. And, uh, I mean, unless the tribes want to have war, that's what they'll do. All right, and this lastly leads us to the idea of leadership. Who gets to lead the tribe? And this is going to become exceptionally important, and this may be the most important holdover effect that really affects the uh, history of Islam as it's going to unfold. 
Now, it's traditionally said that the leadership of uh, the tribe, of course, is it's a family, right? It's a large family. So, of course, falls to the male, the oldest male. It falls to the oldest, the wisest, um, the most gifted negotiator, and, you know, the strongest leader amongst the group. Now, as you would imagine, it's going to be unusual that you have one person who fits all of those uh, categories, especially as someone's getting older, they may be getting, you know, starting to lose their memory and so forth. So in reality, there's going to be uh, a lot of cooperation. So usually the oldest male is going to be the leader. It's a patriarchy and he's going to be the patriarch. But this may not be um, the wisest, the best negotiator, the best politicker, deal maker, and so forth. So he's going to be advised um, by a whole council of people. But again, the, this is family, right? These are going to be nephews, cousins, and so forth. Uh, especially as, as the patriarch is getting older, he may not be able to do that. And so it's not an election per se, definitely because the, I mean, the, the general populace is not electing the leader at all. But there is a sort of a selection of the most capable person among them, um, particularly of who's actually going to exude the the real leadership of the group. Um, you know, the oldest, but definitely when the leader dies, uh, it doesn't pass to his son. This is not like a kingship in the West. Uh, it's going to pass to you know the next oldest, the next the next brother, the next uncle, the next oldest person. And, you know, real power is going to be exuded by the person who is the most gifted dealmaker and uh, politicker in the group. This becomes exceptionally important, and we, we talk about this in, in much greater detail in other episodes, so I don't want to go into it uh, too much, except to just reemphasize how important this is, because we have two things going on here. There are two very important traditions. There's the tradition of leadership in the Bedouin community, which works, as, as I just said, sort of a consensus among the senior members of the uh, community of, you know, who is the best negotiator, the best leader amongst them. And then we have the very, very important idea of lineage, which defines who you are. And this is very much through the patrilineal uh, descent from your father to your grandfather, and so on. This will become exceptionally important, as you know, when we talk about the split between Sunni and Shia. And that's essentially what's going on here. Uh, because when the Prophet Muhammad dies, he does not leave instructions of who, if anyone, is supposed to lead the Muslim community in his... Um, demise in his absence. And so you have these two strands. And so the one strand says, well, you know, this is the way we always pick leaders amongst our community, the same way we pick tribal leaders. And so we're going to pick the the most senior, the wisest, and most influential, the best dealmaker of the group, who is Abu Bakr, uh, the prophet's father-in-law, and the first male con uh, convert. 
by um, Bedouin traditions, that's exactly who you would pick. If this is a tribe, that's exactly the guy you would pick. And his right-hand man, Omar, who is the next, again, most senior and most capable, uh, will be right beside him as his assistant. This is exactly what you expect to happen in a Bedouin tribe. Now, to those who don't look at this as a tribal leadership, they look at it as a lineage. They say, okay, who who does the prophet's descent go to? All right, it should go to his male heir. Now, of course, the prophet did not have a son who lived to adulthood, and so his his male heir is most definitely his son-in-law, Ali. And this is where we get these two different branches. The branch that follows Abu Bakr, of course, becomes the Sunni. The branch that wants Ali become the Shia. But it's not just who they're picking. It's on what basis, and therefore, what role do you assign to that person? So if you picked Abu Bakr um, because you, you did it the same way you pick a tribal leader, then you are looking for someone who's going to do those functions, the political functions, the deal-making functions, settling disputes, right, making rules. That's the guy. And so this is why Sunnis uh, emphasize the fact that the khalif, which is what the leader becomes— has I mean, he has no spiritual powers. He has no magic. He has no gifts or anything like that. He is just the best and wisest, most knowledgeable leader for the community, and that's the person who will be chosen. Uh, but as, as Abu Bakr makes very clear, right? I don't, I don't do any miracles. I don't do anything like that. I don't receive any revelations. I am just a guy. I'm the leader. Versus those who pick Ali are seeing a, a descent, something passed on to him. And so Ali is going to be he's going to be the Khalif in the eyes of the Shia, but he's going to be much more than what the Sunnis see their Khalif as being. Right? And so this is why Ali is seen to have great spiritual functions. He's seen to perform acts that are miraculous. And so, and his line is going to pass on through his descendants who become imams. It's two very different ways of doing things, but they're both coming from different but important Bedouin traditions. What is this? Is this, is this a group leadership thing or is this a family descent? Because those two things were so very important. And so these are some of the effects um, of Bedouin culture that are going to follow on. Uh, we haven't talked at all about religion in the Arabian Peninsula uh, prior to Islam. We'll talk about that next time. That, again, is a very controversial and um, very difficult subject to really uh, get to the truth of. But we'll talk a little bit about that, inshallah, next time. So thank you again for your kind attention. Uh, we appreciate all of you following us after a, a prolonged absence. We're glad to be back with you again. And we look forward to hearing from you, and we hope to have you with us for our next episode. Thank you very much. Shukran jazilan wa ma'asalama.